recording going here. Uh, Revelation 1 and 10 says this. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest write in a book, send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thuatira, uh, or Thuatira, and uh, unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girl. And his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive evermore. Amen. And the and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and of the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And I want to stop right there, and that's reading the, the tenth down through the, uh, the 20th verse of the first chapter of Revelation. Uh, and uh, and the, I guess if I had to, had to take a, uh, a title this morning, uh, it would be Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Now, John, uh, who is uh, who wrote this book, but this book is often, and it's oftentimes you, you'll hear the the book of Revelation referred to as the Revelation of John, uh, or you'll hear John described as the Revelator. But this very first, the, the, but the very the first five words of this book declare the revelation not to be of John, but rather that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and John's merely the vessel uh, by which Jesus is uh, relating this uh, or revealing this, uh, uh, this this revelation to mankind uh, through John. Uh, and of course, John, uh, he, uh, the situation where we find John here, he is uh, an outcast on the Isle of Patmos, uh, and he had found himself there, I believe, twice. Uh, but but he's there on the Isle of Patmos. He's uh, uh, he's an outcast, and and uh, and he's been left there uh, to die. And uh, and so the Lord comes to him, and John writes in the tenth verse, and he says that. Uh, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, John was alone. Physically. He didn't have any of his brethren with him. And he says, and I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Isn't that comforting to know? 
that even in a, as trying of a time as John found himself, he's 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 cast a, on a on an island not far off of the coast of uh, of what we would call modern day Turkey. Um, there he is, and, and he's been left there for the express purpose to die, because he's been viewed as too much of too problematic uh, as it pertains to his uh, his doctrine and and, the, and his beliefs. And, uh, and it had gotten him into a, such a state that he had, he had been outcast. But just like Joseph was in the prison in Egypt, uh, here so we find John, uh, not downcast, not downtrodden, not sad about his circumstances, not, 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 uh, beaten down, but instead we find him in the Spirit on the Lord's day. How, how many times do we find ourselves unable to be there? Because of the, all the conditions that may be going on around us, which when put into context against what John is experiencing, they're really trivial and nothing, aren't they? But we build them up to be some great huge thing. But if we would just remember that Jesus taught us that if we would have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, that that, uh, that, that mountain that's there before us, that we could say to that mountain, be removed and be, ca- be cast into the sea... And it would have it would obey us, wouldn't it? Well, John's got a mountain there in front of him. He's a, uh, he's 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 an outcast from society. He's he's been uh, banished from society. He's there on the Isle of Patmos, uh, but he finds himself in the Lord's uh, in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he hears a sound. Um, he hears a sound behind him that he describes as a great voice, and he goes further to describe it as that of a trumpet. And the voice says this. Uh, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, John uh, was was quoting Jesus, I believe, in the eighth verse, uh, because if you read the way he, pre- he presents it, he, he says, Behold, he cometh in the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. Even so, amen. Uh, even so, so be it. And he says, and he quotes him. He says, "He is the I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty." And then he talks about himself. That's how you get in the Spirit, isn't it? You think about the Lord. You think about what he's done in the past. You think about the great things that he's done present day. And then you think about the things that he's going to do in the future. In the future. See, most of us can't see beyond present day, can we? We, we, If we'll set and allow ourselves a little time. You see, we look at John being uh, uh, banished uh, to the Isle of Patmos uh, as a uh, a persecutorial thing, which it was a very uh, level of persecution. But I'll tell you, God will take an evil thing that has happened to us uh, and he will turn it into something good if we'll let it. Or if we'll let him. 
Joseph said that, didn't he? When his brothers came before him, he said, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I would say the same thing happened to uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, when he uh, when he tied uh, the Hebrew children and cast them into the furnace. Uh, and, uh, and lo and behold, he looks in uh, and he says, I see four men walking unbound. Did we not cast in three men bound? Um, and the fourth one he described as being likened to the Son of God. Uh, and so uh, men can do bad things toward the children of God, can't they? But if we will, by faith, allow God to work through us, he will show us some great things. And John is sitting there and he is, he's recalling. He's recalling Jesus. He's thinking about Jesus. And he, and he is in the Spirit because he's communing with Jesus. And that's what we need to do. And Jesus comes to him and he reaffirms him, doesn't he? He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now that word that is transcribed there as the first, uh, that is uh, in the in the Hebrew language, that is a, a, signi- a signifier that he is the Messiah. Uh, he is the first, or he is the chief, uh, and uh, or the chiefest, uh, and he certainly is the cheapest. He's not only the cheapest of all creation, which I know that as we go through the book of Genesis and we recount the the creation of God, uh, that uh, uh, that uh, man was the pinnacle of the creation in this world, uh, but Jesus was before this world. Because he is God. He's the only begotten Son of God, isn't he? And so there, there the Word of God was in existence, as John says in the first chapter of John, and that Word was made flesh, but there was that Word prior to. And a matter of fact, everything in this world was created by him and, and through him, and there is not anything made that without him was not that wouldn't made. Jesus is the Alpha. He is the Omega. He's the first and the last. And he gives John a commandment, doesn't he? He says, "Now here's what I want you to do, John." Uh, uh, he says, "I want you to write down one of the scariest books that any Christian is ever going to read." That's not what he said, is it? But that's the way we approach the book of Revelation. He says, "I'm going to show you a series of visions, John." And I want you to write down those visions exactly the way you see them. He says it specifically like this. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Unto Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira. That one always gives me trouble. I don't know why. It just does. Unto Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Send Send every one of them what you're about to see, John. Now, I think, I think, now we know that two of these churches, right, Church Smyrna and Philadelphia were commended and they didn't have a fault or a flaw listed in their letter. 
five of these churches, probably to a certain degree, maybe not the whole church body, but a good portion of that church body, they probably couldn't ever get to a place where John was at, here banished on the Isle of Patmos that day. They couldn't get to a place where they would come into the Lord's day in the Spirit of the Lord and commune with the Lord upon their table. Now, he sees the the first vision that he sees, right, is the one of Christ. He sees Christ. We just come off of Christmas and and the world loves the idea of the baby Jesus. The nativity, we, we love the nativity, we love the, 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 the side of the nativity, uh, and, and you can see it all over the place. But that's not the description that John gives for Jesus as he turns and he sees him. He sees a man, he sees him, he, see, he says, first off, the first thing I saw was seven golden candlesticks, so he didn't even see the Lord. And he says, and then in the midst of those seven candlesticks was one like unto the Son of Man. The, he says the same thing really Nebuchadnezzar says when he cast the children, the Hebrew children, into the furnace there. Uh, and uh, uh, in Babylon, he says, and he's clothed with the garment down to the foot, and he's girt about the paps with a golden girdle, and his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as flame of fire. And his feet were likened to fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Now I want to talk about uh, this image of Christ that he sees here, and I want to I want to tell you that I believe that he is seeing a compilation of a lot of the things that is seen uh, uh, concerning concerning Christ or or a lot of the things that we're told to be uh, he sees these things of Christ himself because God's not going to tell us to be something that he isn't also right now the first part the first part is if we go back and look at it is uh, uh something that we something that we can't uh, really understand is how his head and his hairs were white like wool and white as snow and he had eyes that were like a flame of fire. Now we we can't. That's beyond our comprehension, isn't it? To see somebody like that. But now John had already seen it, hadn't he? John had already seen it at the Mount of Transfiguration. Now in Matthew chapter seventeen and one, it says, "After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, uh, and was transfigured." Figured before them, and his face uh, did shine as the sun, and his raiment as white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, and Elias talking with him. So he had already seen that part, hadn't he? And that's the transfigured part. That was Jesus showing them, this is what you have to look forward to. Because John tells us in his epistles that one day... We will be like him. Like him. We can't understand this now because this level of purity, we're we're just not able to attain it 
in this world. We can get close, but the level of purity of Christ, I don't believe we can ever fully attain. Now, the other part of it is Ephesians chapter 6 in, uh, in Paul's discussion or, or, or Paul's description of what it is that we should take upon ourselves to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Uh, it says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand, standing therefore with your loins girt about with the truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, and I think we see that. I can see that in my mind uh, as we go back over uh, into the book of Revelation. That's one of the first things he talked about was his clothing uh, and the description of it was how it was uh, that the, the garment was down to the foot. And he's girt about uh, by the about the paps with a golden girdle or a breastplate, and that it would have been the breastplate of righteousness that he would have been no doubt clothed with here but he goes on further than that Uh, he goes on further than that in the 15th verse uh, he says and having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace having your feet shod that means wearing you know for shoes for basically the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, if we look over here in the tenth chapter of Revelation, we see him his feet, his footwear presented as such, and his feet, his feet were likened to fine brass, as if they'd been burned in a furnace. Now we know that he was never burned in a furnace, was he? But if we're going to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, we're going to walk through some fiery paths, aren't we? We will. It won't. It shouldn't. It, they, the, the, the people of the day and the age that he's writing to, they are going to go through some stuff. They are going to walk through the fire. And, and here, uh, Jesus has on footwear... That will last throughout throughout the fire, won't it? The brass will make it through. Well, our our footwear is the gospel. It's the gospel. In the Ephesians chapter 6 and 16, it says that he takes the shield of faith, uh, and, and it's by that shield of faith that he's able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked of which they were going to certainly stand against. And then lastly, it's the helmet of salvation. And then he talks about the sword of the Spirit. Uh, and, and he also hits on the, the sword of the Spirit in the 16th verse, and he says that it's a sharp two-edged sword, and that sharp two-edged sword pierces to the dividing asunder, doesn't it? Of both soul and spirit. So John's in the Spirit on that day, and so when he writes about that two-edged sword, he's writing from experience because he experienced that piercing of himself, didn't he? That flaying that took place when he was uh, when he was convicted. Now, Jesus, as he's described here, standing holding seven stars in his hand. 
And John falls down at the site, doesn't he? I love it. I love to hear people talk about stand when they. I'll hear people say something akin to this sometimes. Well, I can't wait till the day that I stand before the Lord. Well, you won't. <laughs> you won't stand before the Lord. I don't believe because He's going to be such a sight to behold. It's going to be such a fearful sight and such a wonderful sight that I think we'll all do exactly what John did when we stand before the Lord. And I know that the Bible tells us uh, that the crowns that we are given, we will cast those down at Jesus' feet. Uh, and then, uh, But we're going to all bow down at the feet of Jesus and we're all going to worship Him, aren't we? Because every eye shall see Him and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings. He's Lord of lords. Uh, and here we see John standing in the presence of Jesus and upon the turning around and the viewing of Jesus, he falls down at His feet and he says, And I fell down as dead. John was scared to death, wasn't he? At the sight of the resurrected Christ. We think we're going to stand before Jesus as if we're somebody. This was John. And he falls down at the feet of Jesus as a dead man. But John was that beloved apostle, wasn't he? And Jesus, who had those seven stars in his hand, which represented the angels of the seven churches, and the angels are indicative of the pastors of those churches or the messengers of those churches, he reaches down with that same right hand and he lays it on him. And he says... Fear not. I am the first and I am the last. I want to go to 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. 1 Corinthians in chapter 15 and Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he makes this statement. I'm going to start in the 19th verse. He says, In this life, only we, if, if, sorry, he starts out with if, and if is a huge word. He says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of most, of all men, most miserable. In other words, we don't really have any hope if the only place in the world that we have hope is in this world. We've got hope in Christ beyond the veil of this world, don't we? And that's what our focus should be on. On what's coming, on what's coming one day, one glorious day, uh, when all the world, when, when the mystery will be fully revealed to everybody, won't it? There won't be anybody in the day that Jesus comes back that will be left standing there saying, who's that? Because 
they will absolutely know when they see him coming. As John wrote, as John wrote in uh, that first chapter, with the clouds. He, he left in a cloud, and he's coming back with the clouds, uh, and he is going to be a frightening sight to behold for anybody that doesn't know him, but he'll be just as frightening a sight to behold for those that do. Everybody will fall down at the feet of Jesus that day. This idea that Jesus is going to come back in the air and only take a few with him and that it's going to be some secret thing, it's going to be the most, it's going to be the most viewed, let's use a term that's used today, it's going to be the most viewed event in human history because everybody in the world will behold it at one time. And we don't have just hope of Christ in this world. But we have hope in Christ beyond. And John explains that, or I'm sorry, Paul explains that perfectly. He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead. And it's that risen Christ that John is describing in the first chapter of Revelation. It says, and he's become the first fruits of them that slept. The first of the resurrection. The chiefest, isn't he? The chiefest. The Messiah. Uh, he's the first, the first fruits of them that slept because he was dead and he's now alive and he's alive forevermore. He was alive, he was dead, and now he's alive forever. For since by man came death, regarding Adam, and by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For in, as in Adam all die, Everybody. Nobody escapes. There's this movement in the world, and I've touched on it a few times, but this movement, it just keeps gaining traction, and it keeps gaining momentum, and it keeps gaining speed, where all of these people who have all of this wealth and they have all of these means are spending their money like crazy to try to achieve something that only God can provide, and that's everlasting life. Now there's a lot that believe that if they could just take their brain out of their body and have it transplanted into a robot, then they could live forever. But the brain doesn't cease to exist when one dies, does it? But the animating force behind it does. Because we don't have to look very hard to know that when God created man, he created the body first, didn't he? That would be the brain, that would be the heart, that would be every organ that we need to survive in this world. But it was dead, wasn't it? It had no life in it. And so the thought that's presented there is uh, an ep- a thought that's uh, been there for a long time, and that is an epicurious thought, and that is that you are just a product of all of your being. But all of that existed at creation on the sixth day, and it did not have any life in it until God breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. And it says what in the scriptures? That man became a living soul. 
and he had everlasting life. God never intended for not one person to die. Not one. But Adam but Adam chose death, didn't he? Because God had given him the warning. In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. The woman was deceived, but Adam knowingly ate of the fruit of that tree. He chose death. And just like in Adam, all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So all the things that have gone on in the world over the course of the past year, everybody's exhausted from it, everybody's tired of it, and, and I've kind of looked at this and, and thought about this and from every angle that I can come at it, and I can only come to one conclusion. I believe I said that this, uh, or I see, I believe I shared the same thought last week, uh, but that is simply this this world has absolutely nothing that should be longed after there is nothing in this world that is forever everything in it will be burned up at the day of judgment uh, and the last thing that will be destroyed will be death uh, and and there will be men uh, with Christ once again in his presence, the resurrected Christ, and uh, and I'm not going to say perfected Christ because he was perfect all along. But there they shall be in the presence of the resurrected Christ, the one who made it possible for them to be there in the first place, uh, having fallen down at his feet, but having had him lay the right hand on them to comfort them and say, Fear not, for thou art my sheep. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then afterward, they that are Christ that is coming. He said in the first, uh, first Thessalonians that those that are dead in Christ will rise first with perfected and glorified bodies, and I would say bodies that will gleam brighter than the sun, because John said we will be as he is. And so we, we touched on that, and, and I want to go back over, and, and I want to finish up. I want to finish up. He once again affirms, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive evermore, uh, and I have the keys to hell and death. So the secret of life lies in Christ Jesus. You want to know what, uh, you want to have a, 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 a tremendous life? Uh, it's not going to. It's not going to subsist of material things. Those things actually weigh down our spirituality quite a lot. Uh, uh, when we have less, uh, we tend to have more with Christ Jesus. Uh, we all we 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 oftentimes think about and we look back at the people who lived in the generations immediately previous to this generation, and we say, "Oh, they they just seemed." To, they just seem to be closer to God. They just seem to, uh, they just seem to have something that we didn't. And you know what that was? It was hardship. They knew what real hardship was. 
When you know what real hardship is, then it draws you closer to God. When you get drawn closer to God, guess what? You're going to find yourself in the Spirit of the Lord more often, aren't you? Because how can we be in the Spirit of the Lord but not be nigh unto God? I don't think it's possible to be be in the the Spirit of the Lord, especially on His day, and not be close to Him. But when you know what real hardship is, when you know what real... uh, Because He's writing a letter because they're going to endure a lot of hardship. With what gets unfolded in this book, the church that was planted there at Jerusalem, which through persecution was spread into the four corners of the world, they are about to go through some extreme hardship. If we went over to China today and we were to talk to some people who were Christians in China today, or I'm going to actually say this, even probably the Uyghurs, we would probably have our eyes opened a little bit as to the understanding of what real hardship is in terms of being persecuted for the Lord's sake. In the West, in the last 50 years, the idea of being persecuted has largely been a novelty item because we haven't been. You go to an area where they really experience. Go to Nigeria where they are killing them by the hundreds. And you'll find some people, I will guarantee you, that are really close to the Lord. I will guarantee you, you will find some people that are very much in the spirit on the Lord's day. Very much. So he tells John, write down what you see. Write down what you see because the things that they are going to be told is going to be vital for their survival. And that's what happens. That's what he wrote down. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. Tell them what they're going to have to endure, John. Tell them what's coming down the road. We need to be looking ahead and not looking back. Jesus used that analogy so many times. But most effectively, when he said, Any man having taken his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. We're about to start a new year, aren't we? This year is coming to an end very rapidly. Let it be dead. Let us take our hand to the plow. Let us get nigh unto God. Let's be in the Spirit of God. And let's press on toward the high calling. The one that Paul wrote about. Because one day, just like Adam, we'll all die. Unless 
the day of the Lord comes before that. Let's be there. If you want to be anywhere in 2021, let's be there. I don't believe in resolutions because when we make resolutions, well, we largely make them to break them. I'm not saying make a resolution to be there. I mean, let's change our life so that we are closer to the Lord. That's my message this morning. I pray you get a blessing out of it. Brother Williams, if you've got a if you've got a song. <laughs>